0: I'm Debbie Caldwell, and I'm going to be reading the scripture for today. It's in Acts 15, 1 through 12. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem. To the apostles and the elders But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Debbie, for that reading. Well, our text this morning brings us into a debate. Um, as we've been saying, I've been kind of opening up every sermon in the last several weeks with this idea that as things are going well, there's going to be some um, hindrance or some battle, some kind of um, friction that's going to cause it to not go as smoothly as we would otherwise like it to go. And this one's pretty plain for us right here in the text. You and I know that there are pivotal moments in our lives, either for us personally or the organizations we belong to, the church we might belong to, the work we might do, or something along those lines where we have to determine what we're going to be about. There's this moment where we're saying, okay, this is the make or break. Who are we going to be from this point going forward? And what what are we going to um, uh, uh, give ourselves to as an identity over us? This is the debate that's going on here in our text. Just like the Christians, then Christians now must set their minds on whether they're going to be about the law full of its rules and regulations, its expectations, its preferences, because that's what we often do with law is we hang on to it and make it something personal to us. And if you don't adhere to it, then somehow you're lesser than me, which leads to our own offenses. Are we going to set our mind on being about the law or on grace, which our text will show us as well as many other supporting texts this morning, that grace is conducive to freedom and trust in the Lord and in one another and yielding to one another's preferences rather than being ruled by them. Amazing things happens when when you and I make our mindset not about making this life about what I need, Or how I feel, or even how I'm going to get through fill in the blank. It doesn't mean those things are never important, but when your ultimate focus is on those things, it takes away from the bigger picture of what God is doing and the better parts of your life and flourishing in him. So a pivot is taking place in the history of the church. Luke is recording for us here that things are about to turn. We know that the shift has gone outside of the Jewish population and now um, bringing in the Gentiles into the faith, beginning with Cornelius. So we know that geographical shift is taking place. We know that um, um, cultural, national sort of shift is taking place. But now this theological shift has to be solidified here. What are we going to be about The text is telling us that the church is going to determine once and for all what they are going to be. Our identity is going to be in grace and not in law because many were coming saying it's great that they're joining. It's great that they're following Jesus. We're just a little put off by the fact that not adhering to our customs, not doing things our way. And we've been at this a long time. We've kind of earned this one. We've been waiting for Messiah forever. We've been good, uh, we've been good little boys and girls all this time. And you're telling us they can just sneak in without having to go through all these rites, customs, and rituals? We don't think it's right. This is a pivotal moment. What are we going to be about? Because the heart of the gospel, that which is setting the world on fire and continues to, the heart of the gospel is grace and not law. There is a role for law. This is not an anti-law text or an anti-law message. It's putting law in its appropriate place. When I, when I refer to law, we could be thinking of all sorts of things, speed limits and don't murder and all these kinds of things. And that's true. And those are civil laws that keep us in order and keep things intact. But also we're referring to the law that God gave his people with the whole thunder and and lightning display on Mount Sinai, where he, he said, don't even come close to the mountain because I'm doing something here. But Moses, you come up, I'm going to give you what matters to me and what you're going to address the people with. And then Moses continued to record for the Lord all kinds of ceremonial and social guidelines. And so the Jews were trying to be faithful to adhere to that because they recognized that God had made them distinct from every other nation as a result of giving those laws. And these are the things that the Jews would later come along. The Pharisees would then add 600-plus regulations and rules and everything to that, saying, that's not enough. That's not hard enough to live by for you. Let's go ahead and add all these other things about how far you can go if your donkey falls in a ditch and all these kinds of crazy specific rules and regulations. And Jesus came to smash those, all of these man-made added traditions to what God had intended. But this isn't an anti-law approach or even question or debate. Law gives an establishment for a society. It creates a system in which we can operate and function and it helps produce a culture and customs of how we do things. Law separates those that are trying to live peaceably with all people from those who are trying to be rebels. It exposes the heart of that rebellion if we didn't have the law, we wouldn't know who was who. But it also reveals the character of the lawgiver, And this is particularly what I want us to focus on this morning because the law that we're talking about, specifically the Ten Commandments, comes from the heart of a God who still cares about the ten things listed on those tablets. That he hasn't changed his opinion of them. He hasn't moved on from them. It shows us what he cares about, the intent that he wanted for his children. But as we're going to see with some helpful text here, that the law was to point us towards where real freedom comes from. That freedom would come through our perfect obedience of this law. Let me just take a quick poll. Those of you, how many of you are doing perfectly with that? Show me. So, you know, the law is good. It's pointing to your freedom. Your freedom waits on the other side of your perfect obedience. But how are we doing with that, really? That's the problem is trying to keep this perfect law. We can't do it. It's impossible to do perfectly. And therefore, that is why it was even given and expressed to mankind. But there is a role of law. But there was in this story, you might have heard in our reading that there was a defense of grace that was taking place. This brought a severe reaction from Paul and Barnabas. Verse 2, it says they had no small dissension and, and, and debate with those that had traveled. It would be hundreds of miles, these guys traveled, to make them act more like good Jews. Instead of accepting the fact that these outsiders have accepted Christ and now we're all one in God, under Christ, they traveled all that distance to say, no, you have to do some Jewish things in order to become a Christian. This set Paul and Barnabas off, and I'm guessing probably... Barnabas is just mentioned there because he's there and supporting and a leader. I think it set Paul off pretty severely. This is a passionate confrontation and yes, it is okay to fight even in the midst of the church over things that matter. I said that that way on purpose. It is okay to fight over the things that matter. But there's all kinds of instruction that we have on how to do that, how to show brotherly love to one another so that we don't, as the scripture says, bite and devour one another and just consume each other in order to be right. This is one of those instances where Paul and Barnabas aren't going to stand for this. Paul is a former Pharisee. He knows what he's talking about. He knows that what's at war here is verse one. Some men came down from Judea who were teaching the brothers unless you're circumcised. And, and that is an actual practice. Yes, but it's also meant to represent all the customs in all the law. It wasn't just that practice, but because if you open the door to one thing, why would you not open it up to all the other expectations? Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. You cannot be saved. In direct opposition is verse 11. This is a quote here, but we, uh, the apostles and elders, believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's an important phrase we'll get to later, just as they will. So there isn't a diminishing of the law. They're not saying, yeah, yeah, no, you don't have to sell this law stuff with us because that's old school. The law, that was terrible, man. That was We tried that before and and, and there's no good and there's no point to it whatsoever there isn't a diminishing of the law it's a clarification of what it is and what it's for jesus also had clarified he said in the um, in the sermon on the mount in matthew 5 and he's about to explain all the different practices and viewpoints of the kingdom of god that is now coming to mankind to say, you thought you could do all these things externally. You thought you could do this well, but guess what? God looks at the heart, and it's much, much harder to please him at the heart level than it is on the outside level. So he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He even goes on to add that it's through the perfection of the law that we are going to get to heaven. Like we said, our problem is we can't get there through our own perfection. So he goes on to live the remainder of his years and then die sacrificially for us only to be resurrected from the grave so that we could see that, oh, our perfection comes through him, not through us and our own efforts. You see, Jesus isn't that next generation of God leader who says, yeah, my dad was all cranked up on rules. He got all worked up over these things, but we're this is a chill administration. We're doing things different now. You know, that all that fire and brimstone, shaking mountains and stuff. You know, we don't do that anymore. Now it's all about just making fish multiply and giving you all the bread you ever wanted. It's what we do here. Jesus isn't saying, I'm coming to do away, saying my father was wrong in those things or that maybe we were a little misguided or we asked too much of you or something. He says, no, I knew what we were accomplishing. I say we as in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was a point to all this so that you would need someone to come fulfill this law that is too high and too difficult for you to fulfill. So here I am. Grace, the opposite of this enslavement to law, can be defined as God's favor towards the unworthy or God's benevolence on the undeserving. Don't lose sight of the fact that unworthy and undeserving is at the heart of this discussion. That's what makes it grace. His grace, I'm sorry, in his grace, God is willing to forgive us and bless us, even though we fall short of living perfectly or righteously. So, yeah, Paul's going to freak out a little bit. He's going to have a combative reaction to this because as a Pharisee, he knew the law backwards and forwards. He had dedicated his entire life to doing what he probably thought was living it out perfectly. I don't know what he did in the quiet moments of his conscience when he realized he wasn't. But for the most part, everybody looked at him and said, this guy's got it together. He's got full of zeal. He's compassionate. He's dedicated. Paul knew that the end of that road was at some point you're going to be confronted by the grace of Jesus and you won't be able to stand. You won't be able to see. I know where this thing ends. I know where this road goes. So he's saying, we're not going to allow this. It's it's not, it's not Jesus plus anything else it means that we earn our salvation. That's what's the heart of fulfilling law is an earning. Why would we need Jesus' gift of grace? It's been said so many times before, but I would encourage you to memorize this line as an encouragement to your soul. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it Sandwich between the grace that we could not earn and Christ who we could not be is our own faith that comes into the equation that even the scripture says is a gift from him. He is through the whole process. This is how Paul would later go on to clarify to the Galatian believers, because they were starting to lose the balance, uh, the battle, I should say, with this um, idea of the Judaizers coming in and saying, we got to add more law. We got to strengthen this thing. We got to make it count for more. They were starting to lead people astray, leaving them, leading them away from the grace of Christ, which is of utmost importance. So he writes to them in Galatians three. It's a long paragraph, but I think it would give us the context of what we're talking about. Now, before faith came, that is before we had the ability to believe in Christ, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Some of your translation might say it was our schoolmaster. It was the one that picked us up at our front door and walked us to school. It guided us to the place of learning. So that's what the law was in verse 24. It was our guardian until Christ came. It was our schoolmaster in order that we might be justified by faith. It pointed to the one we needed to believe in, but it made it difficult to do so with all of its practices is what we're saying. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we don't need that person picking us up at the front door anymore. We don't need that guardian walking us to school. School has come to us. Rests in our hearts. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27. For as many of you as, of you, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now you've heard this before. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor th- free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In other words, there's no more distinction of priority. We all under Christ receive this grace. Paul knew as a good Pharisee and now as one who's been cleansed by the blood of the lamb, he knew the point of the ceremonial law that God had given his people was to distance the Jews from every other nation. To prepare them for worship cleanliness, to be able to come before the Lord clean. So they had to obey the law. And if they got themselves in a mess, there were steps they needed to take in order to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean. So now that Christ has come, you know, Jesus actually said to the Pharisees, you guys like a scrub on the outside. You scrub these dishes on the outside and everything. You think you're cleaning yourselves up because you're doing all these outward things? He says, God cleans from the heart, from the inside out. That is the power of the arrival of Christ. From the inside out, he would clean us beyond anything that we could ever accomplish on our own. This is the grace that that was so now custom uh, accustomed in Paul's soul that he had been resurrected and saved from that when others came in with this offensive language of, oh, yeah, we want to add a few more of our customs, though. We're not going to count them as Christians until they do a few things like we've always done them. They said, "Ah, no, no, we're not going to let this stand. Peter starts adding that there's some proof to this that grace has come to all of us, even the outsiders from the Jewish faith. Verse 70 says, and after there had been much debate, now I think that's the miracle of the passage is that a lot of debate had happened before Peter spoke up. So that's our miracle right there. I'll let that sink in for a second. Peter, after what must have felt like an eternity, finally, I want the author to put in, finally stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He says, by my own experience and calling, we went and found Cornelius. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, go meet this man who is sincerely seeking salvation, the salvation that has come to the Jews. So I've gone and found Cornelius and we led him to Christ, as we would say today. Verse eight in God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter is listening. Here's the proof, guys, that we are barking up the wrong tree. If we want to monkey around with what God is already doing, he says, listen, we're forgetting the fact the Holy Spirit has arrived and he's proven his arrival by moving in the great gifts in the ways that we've seen happen in some of our other stops along the way, including at Pentecost when in Acts 2, when the whole uh, area was uh, speaking a common language and being heard by foreigners in the language they understood. He says, by the way, what happened to the Jews is proof happened to the Gentiles as well. And then, of course, he reminds them there was no distinction made in the grace that they were received. Now, a few chapters back for us in Acts 11, they had already come to this conclusion. Remember, the um, apostles had come back and reported all the great things God was doing. The move of the spirit was there. And so there was like this pin drop moment of are the Jews going to accept this report? And it was like, we wait, we wait. Yay! It says they glorified God because God granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. So they had celebrated this already, but as time goes on, people become people. We start to miss the old traditions and customs. We start to think, man, it was a little bit more controlled when we could do things our way. And I don't know, all that old stuff wasn't so bad. We add to these things because, in a sense, it gives us a sense of control or it gives us um, some comfort and familiarity. I don't know what it is that motivates us. I think there are some that stir this up just to stir things up, and I think that's part of what's happening with these guys traveling a long distance. But the reason why it started resonating in the minds of some of the already Christian uh, Jewish Christians is because, like, yeah, I miss those things, and what would be wrong with some some cleanliness, and what would be wrong with some some having them do things our way a little bit? Which, of course, becomes a very slippery slope. Because the heart of freedom is grace, not captivity. So let's go a little bit further in our text here. Back in verse 10, it says, Now, therefore... He's continuing his speech. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, you're saying you guys got to do this well, and we have a whole history of failing at this. And somehow you're thinking this is a good solution to the problem. Like, let's put more regulations on them, even though we have a terrible track record of being faithful. But we believe, he says it this way, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we could say, alone Just as they will. Let's jump down to verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied. This is James, the half brother of Jesus, who history tells us maybe wasn't even a Christian until the resurrection of his brother. He wasn't buying the whole thing until the reports of his resurrection. And then he started cluing in. I think this is something real here. James becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem, ends up writing the book of James later in the New Testament. We call it the, the Proverbs of the New Testament or the wisdom writings in the New Testament. This man was respected. If he spoke, people listened. So after, speak, after they finished speaking, James speaks up and says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, very key name he uses. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Okay, so we have Peter's account of a calling and his experience. Now, James is saying, and we have the word of God to confirm that this is happening. So passage is taking largely from Amos, he says this. God's word says this. After this, I, that's God, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James says again, after quoting these passages, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, we should not add a burden to them that we failed with ourselves. And do we not recognize that God has been doing something along these lines all throughout history? These apostles, these leaders of the church are seeing this pivotal moment in their own history and saying, we have to promote the freedom of grace so that we don't lead people into the shackles of law. They want us to know, as the Holy Spirit does, that there's a spiritual freedom that comes in grace. It's a freedom from ourselves or what the scriptures call this body of sin the stuff that you and I can't seem to get away from, the thing that keeps haunting us, the the thing that keeps always needing the Lord's forgiveness. That's what puts us in shackles. But a freedom from that, a freedom from its penalty, a freedom from its power, that's what makes the gospel unique. Religion, all of the rules and the laws of all the other establishments through all the history of the world and currently operating today, whether they call themselves a religion or not, what they give is advice or direction, or they say, this is the way to live your life. Do it this way. But what we have is news. The gospel means it's the good news. What's the news? What is it telling us that all that we couldn't do before has already been done for us in Christ? There's something that's initially attractive about law. Something that kind of seems like, hey, maybe we're going to find some direction and some correction in this. So we enter the law seeking freedom, but what we find as we go through it and get exposed by it is that we end up in prison. The spiritual freedom is because the gospel removes the burdens that otherwise hold us down. This yoke or this weight around our necks. Jesus had said in Matthew 11 that my yoke is easy, that 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 bar or that shackle that went around the oxen to lead them through the plow, that yoke that linked them together for work. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you because my gospel lifts the burdens off of your neck. In me, you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to prove yourself worthy because you're not. I am. And I love you anyway. You can face the guilt and the regret of your past because I've fixed that too. I've paid for that. You can face your future because you don't have to fear whether or not you're going to live up to it. But not only is our spiritual freedom something that we are freed from ourselves, but even in the culture in which we find ourselves, we have freedom towards community. We've said this often. That as the world seems to strive for solutions to bring us together, it only drives us further apart. And here we see what's happening between Jew and Gentile. Something that is the only solution to the problem. If you've paid any attention to the news already this weekend, you know that Israel is under severe attack. And a lot of people would see and look into the signs of the times and all that's going on with that. I'm not taking the time to even pretend to know all that's going on and, and try to explain that. The reality is this is that God has been doing something in that region for his glory for the longest time and his plans and his purposes will never be thwarted by any, any enemy, but his answer has always been in Christ alone, not in political power or not in winning these wars or skirmishes, but it's important that we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. As the scriptures instruct us, we have contacts and friends and family of people that are going through the trauma and the turmoil of these surprise attacks. We have Christians that are on the ground who are actively trying to win the territory of Israel for the cause of Christ. We need to pray for their efforts. We need to pray for their safety. And we're calling you to do that with us this week, even as you're praying your Ephesians 320 prayer beyond all that we could ask or think. Perhaps that's what you would spend your time praying for this week. The answer to the Jewish-Gentile divide has always been and will always be the freedom that we find in Christ. That is how that true community is built. So if we have a freedom of grace, the counter of that is the slavery of sin that we've been talking about. Let me just read this one passage from Paul that really hits at this in Romans 6. He asks, well, what fruit were you getting at the time from the things that you, of which you are now ashamed? What was the result? The things that you're ashamed of, the things you're like, oh, I wish that was never part of my past. What was the real result of that in your life is what he's asking. For the end of those things is death. But now that you can be set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Yes, there are good slaves or good things to be enslaved to our world. Their head would explode to hear the Bible quoted in such a way. But being a, because we're all slave to something, it's just whether or not we admit it. And so when we are slave to anything but Christ, we're a slave to our sin, which the end result Paul is telling us leads to death. But When we've become slaves of God, the fruit that we get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages or the paycheck of sin is death, but the free gift of God—not free to Him, free to us—cost Him everything. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the apostles know what's at the heart of this debate is what you have for an answer to sin. And it ain't being better at the law. You're just going to fail. You're going to continue to live in guilt, continue to live in shame. The only one that has come to pay your penalty now awaits you to just follow and live in him. And the heart of the church now as this organization, as this organism of all of these individuals comes together, the heart of the church is grace and not separation. Because we know that that's what the law often produces. Because the flesh, our body of sin, divides us. We live in an individualistic culture. We ask in our hearts as a collective people or just people in general, what matters is what I get out of something. It's how I think or how I feel about a particular thing as to what I deem to be true or powerful or valuable. And rather than just saying, well, that's out there, that doesn't affect us in here. I think we know better, right? It creeps into the church. We say things from an individualistic heart that says, well, I can hear God's will for me by myself. You know, I come here to just get fed, I get my download of worship, I get my download of scripture and everything, and, and Jesus is here for me. I'm going to get my my snippet, I'm going to get my little morsel, and I'm going to move on. Doing a life that I determine is the one I should live or the one that works best for me. And especially, please don't send me other, any other well-meaning Christians who are come to help me through this life. I don't need their time, I don't need their concern, I don't need their prayers or anything like that. We have far too often in the Christian culture, this individualistic mindset that my faith is for me and for me alone. And this, I think, is the battle of our day. I think this is the thing that will cause the, the leader with the heart of Paul to be able to rise up and say, we can't allow for this. This is what will crumble the community of the church and what will destroy the demonstration of the grace of God. We look back at verse 12. I skipped it on purpose because I wanted to save it for this for this point. There was a point in all of the speeches and all the things that were going on when Barnabas and Paul were talking to them. Verse 12 says, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. We need to be reminded of the grander scale of all that God is doing. In an individualistic culture, when it's all about how it impacts me, what I get out of this and what I'm going through and all that kind of stuff, when we hear the stories of what God is doing on a grander scale, what does it do to us? It shrinks us. And not that it's just about our benefit, because this is an incredible benefit to the rest of the Christian community when we're concerned about the needs of others. But even for us, what it does is it takes our burdens and our frustrations, our fears, and it minimizes them. It reduces them in our worry and in our scope, because I'm a little bit more I'm spending more of my energies, my time and my concern on the needs of others and the work that God's doing beyond me. So even then, it has some sort of, dare I use the word, psychological healing aspect to it, to speak the vernacular of our day. No, we need to be reminded that God's work is far bigger than how it just impacts me as the individual. So after proving that God's grace was indeed moving and resting on the Gentiles... They proved it by Peter's calling and his work. They proved it by the, the clear presence of the Holy Spirit. They proved it by the prediction and the prophecy of the Old Testament. Then they said, James says this in 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. That should challenge the flow of where you thought this is going a little bit. It sounded like they were saying, we're going to wipe our hands of any expectations. We're not going to ask them to live by any standards. We're just going to say to them, and we're going to send this in a written letter, hey, you know what? Don't worry about circumcision stuff. Don't you worry about all our rules and customs. We're just going to let that go. That's what they said they would do. They said this is a salvation by grace alone. But we'll add a couple things. We'll add a few things. The Spirit is doing a work of unification. And that's what we need to remember about everything that's being discussed here. And we'll clarify this in a second. God's work, as we just said, is always bigger than we imagine it to be. In our sinful flesh, we have a tendency to bring our viewpoint more towards what I can see in the mirror, what I can feel in my own life. And so we need that expression of God is doing this big thing and outside of me and my existence. God's doing a broader work. And so Peter had said earlier, he says, we'll be saved just as they are. He's saying, Hey, look, it's not about whether or not they fit us. We actually should be looking at us. Do we fit with them? That's a little bit sobering because the Jews are sitting here like we've, we've been doing this forever. Yeah. And we clarified, we, we recognized who the Messiah was, but I mean, look, I mean, we take this religion thing seriously in our people. We got that part down, clean living, obey the law, do all that sort of, and we've just added Jesus. And Peter is saying, actually, what it should be is that we should be thankful and blessed to be saved just as they are being saved. Because the Spirit, as the Spirit moves, brings us together and unifies us, not because it makes us drop our guard on the things that matter, but because it unites us in the things that matter to Christ. So there was some observations that they were asking that they pay attention to. Stay away from things that have been offered to idols, especially at this point in this critical juncture of the growth of our church. You can you can sense here a little bit that they're not saying we received this command from God. And this is what they were like. How do we get a message across to them? How do we think this through? And the Holy Spirit is giving these wise men and these faithful men good um, responsibility and having to wrestle with these things so that they write it as a letter. And Luke is very faithful to record that it wasn't just thing like, oh, I just got this download from God. Don't do the idle thing. They're saying, we think without adding a burden to you, we think we can ask you for these things. Just observe these things for us. Stay away from things that are offered to idols. We should be avoiding those things anyway. Paul will later clarify in 1 Corinthians about the difference in liberties. He'll say, some of you look at meat that's been offered to idols and say, what a great bargain. They sell it on the other side of the, of the idol for dirt cheap. We needed some meat. We're being good stewards of God's money. We're getting it cheap. So we're gonna, and you don't have any conscience that this was like, oh, ha, ma, ha, you know, offered to an idol. Cause it's good steak. So you take it. He said, some of you, this hits a little too close to home. You've been a part of those practices. You don't want anything to do with that meat because of what it represents of the paganism in your life and in your in your history. So he said, both of you need to honor one another's consciences. So it's a good thing at this juncture. Let's stay away from the things that are offered to idols. Because there is one true God. We don't need to be messing around with this. He says we should be avoiding fornication and fornication, as you know, from a biblical definition is is simply any sexual relationships outside of the marriage covenant. So we'd say, well, that's already an expectation on Christians. Why would they add that? Well, in particular, in a pagan culture, too, they were um, uh, involved in before knowing Christ, they were involved in uh, temple prostitution and things that they were including in their worship. Talk about a messed up culture. But they were also looser on pagan marriage practices, like marrying within the family and other kinds of weird, bizarre things. And they're like, we could do well to clean up some of these things, too. Let's not just say God doesn't care about any of these things because he does care about marriage. He instituted it. So let's take that serious, too. And then let's not eat meat strangled with, uh, strangled or uh, still with blood in it and that sort of thing, because that was a severe step in the life of Jewish customs. But that sounds like they're saying you can't do that or else you won't be saved. They're not saying that at all. That's why they kept underscoring. We're freaking out about this grace alone, not law, but you are in a congregate. You are in a um, cultural environment. It says to us in verse 21 that Moses has had in every city, those who proclaimed him for, he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. If you want to reach your Jewish brothers and sisters or potential Jewish brothers and sisters, don't slap the big bloody piece of meat down in front of them and say, hey, let's talk about Jesus while you're eating it. They're saying, hey, maybe you should hold back from some of what you think is your freedom and your liberty as you're trying to reach across the aisle and to bring in those in the faith that would otherwise be. I mean, especially when it comes to like the matters of like what you can tolerate in your stomach and everything. I mean, if you, there are things that easily gross me out. And if you want to have a conversation while I'm grossed out, I won't be hearing anything. I'll just be like, I don't know. i got to get out of here. And so so the, the apostle is saying, like, even as a, a sign of either brotherly affection, as people are still trying to grow through this process, or even as evangelistic witness, would you not be willing to let some of these things go? And they said, we think it's reasonable to ask you just do these three things. In other words, reaching others, whether they're your brothers and sisters already who still haven't grown out of some of the customs or whether they have no intention of leaving some of those things behind or reaching those who don't know the Lord Jesus yet. It requires that we strip away our preferences and submit to only what God asks of us. The Jews had to drop their legalism. The Gentiles had to drop their lawlessness And meet somewhere in the middle, and that middle is under the banner of Christ and his grace. So when they read the letter that they didn't have to go through the circumcision process, how do you think they reacted? Verse 31, when they heard it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I think that's putting it mildly. Phew, dodged a bullet there. But that's what grace does when you respond with grace. Doesn't that lift the burdens of others? Doesn't that I mean, do you want to be on the side of language like law, rules, restriction leading to death? Or do you want to be the one walking in the room that's promoting freedom, unity, eternal life? Well, Brent, it sounds like what you're saying. It doesn't matter what we do. Absolutely not. What we do still matters. But whatever we do, no matter how well we do it, will not save our souls. Only the grace of Jesus. We are only saved by grace through faith because we don't own this thing. It is not up to you and me to determine who gets in the kingdom or who isn't. Oh, they vote that way. They can't be Christians. Oh, they go there. They drink that. They eat that. They can't be Christian. We add all of our stuff. Fill in the blank our expectations of what a real Christian is, and we hold that same standard on them. Apart from allegiance to the cross of Christ, there is no expectation we should have on anybody except for that which grows them in maturity in the faith over time. And that's the thing that we remain available to. Determine in your hearts to be recipients of God's grace and to be ambassadors of God's grace. Let's put our stake in the ground right now and say this is the church that we are. We emphasize, we live by, we promote grace above law. We care about right things, but we don't lose our minds over people not doing it our way all the time. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a great couple of verses to memorize if you haven't. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is the grace of God being made available to us. Would you please stand and let's pray. Lord, we recognize the difficulty of the discussions and the debates that went on in the early church. We know that the day that we live in and the church that we celebrate in and we worship in relative ease and comfort, Lord, comes as a result of all that you've done through your grace through the generations previously. So help us, Lord, not to reinterpret your grace. Help us, Lord, not to misapply it. Certainly, Lord, help us not to abuse it by continuing in sin. Lord, you've saved us by your power so that we could be your vessels, so that we could be the ones who point to your goodness and glory. And so, Lord, all the sin that we allow and we don't allow for your grace to transform us robs you of that glory. So, God, may we be changed. And may we be pursuing you in your holiness, but, Lord, may we be so gracious and assisting to others that no matter where they are on that journey, Lord, we have more in the tank to show them. So thank you, Lord, for your ultimate forgiveness. I thank you, Lord, that we are saved by your grace and your grace alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.